We're going to take our study at Luke chapter 14. We are continuing, for those who don't normally meet with us, we go through the book of, at a time, but uh, we're Luke chapter 14. We're continuing our study here from where we left off a few weeks ago at verse 25. So Luke 14, 25, and I want to read this portion with you. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build the tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or, the, or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may be seated. It was the German theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, with one of the most profound statements, simple but true, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And while there are many in the church today, I think, would, would find this terminology disturbing, somewhat offensive, this is the message that Jesus offered those who would follow after him. This is the message that he would speak to the multitudes on this occasion. Indeed, he wants them to know there is a cost to being a disciple. And here in this passage, Jesus clearly lays out the terms of what it is to be a disciple. But I want to give you the context so that you can kind of get the flow of where we are. At this point, we've seen in our study in Luke's gospel, Jesus is drawing ever closest to what will be his final ascent up into Jerusalem, where he knows with certainty that he will face his ultimate rejection by the religious leaders. As a result, he knows that he will face his death on a cross. Jesus is very aware that time is short. The hour and the purpose for which he has come is now at hand. He and his disciples have spent these final past months and weeks ministering down in the region of Perea on the east side of the Jordan River where they have gone from village to village teaching, preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Now the events and the parables that are given in chapters 14 through 17.10 of Luke seem to have taken place in one particular day, which is a Sabbath day, which we began with Jesus accepting the invitation to go to dinner at the home of a prominent Pharisee. 
And as we saw at the beginning of the chapter, the invitation was not necessarily a gesture of goodness or of goodwill, but rather it was a plot. It was a setup by the Pharisees who despise and loathe Jesus and were desperately looking for anything and everything that they might be able to use against him. And among the invited guests, they had placed near Jesus a man who was currently suffering from a condition called the dropsy. What we know today as edema, it's a swelling of bodily fluids that indicates a serious failure of your organs. They were scrutinizing Jesus' every move. Perhaps they're sitting there watching him to make sure that Jesus would actually blatantly heal this man on a Sabbath day, knowing that they are watching him. And of course, Jesus didn't disappoint them. You know, with grace and with love and compassion, Jesus reached out, he touched the man, he healed him on the spot, and then he sent him on his way. And then it is Jesus who confronts the Pharisees. And he asked them on that occasion, which one of them, if they had a donkey, or if they had an oxen that was trapped on the Sabbath, would they not also go out and rescue their animal on the Sabbath? And of course, Jesus knew the answer to the question. He knew that they were far more willing to show compassion for their own animals than they were for fellow human beings made in the image of God. And so while they claimed to follow the letter of the law, they completely missed the intent and the spirit of the law, which is love. And then Jesus observes the conduct of both the guest and of the host. He saw the guests scrambling about, trying to position themselves in seats of greater honor. And so Jesus rebukes them, and in essence warns them, never presume your own honor among where you are. Allow your honor to be given to you by the host rather than be humiliated and put in a place of the lowest place among the guests. And the principle that Jesus lays out in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And to the host, Jesus exposes their selfishness and their greed and the fact that they only invite those people who can offer them something in return. And to them, Jesus says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Rather than inviting just those who can reciprocate your generosity, invite those people who are genuinely in need and have nothing to offer in return, and then look for the reward to come from God after this life when he will reward all of his faithful servants for their acts of kindness and grace. Rather than looking for the reward of man, which is temporal, look for the reward of God, which is eternal. And of course, that was followed up by Jesus giving this really powerful illustration or parable of the marriage supper, which we studied in our last study, which in essence, he depicts his own rejection amongst the Jews and his ultimate reception among the Gentiles throughout the world. In the parable, we saw how God the Father sends an invitation out to the house of Abraham, and he invites them all to come and join with him in celebration the marriage of his only son that will be filled with joy and with feasting. When the day comes for the, and all the preparations have been made, when the final invitation announces the time has come, all he receives is a bunch of multitude of, of lame excuses as to why they couldn't come. And so the father, in love for his son, finds a way to fill the house with those who would joyfully accept his invitation. And he commends and he commissions his, his servants. And verse 21, he says, go out at once into the streets 
and lanes and city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, master, we have commanded has, done, has been done and still there is room. And so the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And so the gospel rejected, Jesus says, by his own will be received by those on the outside, the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled. Go out into the highways, he says, go to the byways, find them. If they're blind, I want you to lead them in. If they're crippled, if they're lame, I want you to carry them in. If they're too poor, I want you to provide for them. But make sure they come to my dinner and feast. And that great invitation has been going out for 2,000 years, and I venture to say that most of us here this morning have accepted that invitation. We're now feasting at the Lord's table, but this is nothing as to what he has in store for us still to come, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we pick up here in verse 25, and it says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Man, this is radical talk. Jesus, what are you saying? Now, first thing I want you to notice here at this point in Jesus' ministry that he's very popular, that people have come from all over the regions seeking Jesus out. For many in our churches today, we kind of find and think the size of the crowd is really a measurement to how we define or determine success. We tend to evaluate the importance of someone's ministry by the number of people that they attract. And so if a person or a preacher can fill a stadium and build mega churches and campuses around, we tend to make the assumption this really must be a work of God, otherwise they wouldn't attract so many people. However, the Gospels, when you go through them, they clearly illustrate that the size of the crowd was really a poor way of determining the true spiritual value of what is really taking place in the hearts of people. Because Jesus is never really impressed by the size of the crowd. He certainly understands that there are many who come seeking him for all their own various reasons. For instance, the proud Pharisees, they came seeking him out. They're looking for him, not because they want to share with him, but they're trying to find fault with him. They come as skeptics, as cynics, as fault finders. There were those who came to Jesus out of curiosity. They came to be entertained by him and the miraculous things they heard about him doing. They come as outside observers facilitated in their own selves by pleasing themselves, but they're untouched inwardly by what Jesus is and who he is. There were still others who came seeking him out only for what he could give to them. They came seeking him out for food and for their own ends. They come to Jesus seeking him as a means to their own ends. And still among them, there were those who came seeking out among them who were humble, those who were broken, the despondent, who were in desperate need of a savior. They came to Jesus looking for healing. They came to Jesus looking for forgiveness, for salvation, because in Jesus they would find everything they never found in the world. So here in this scene, Jesus is before this, this massive crowd that is gathered around him. They've come to seek him out. And Jesus turns to this crowd and he begins to speak to them. And again, while many churches might impress themselves with the collection of the bodies in attendance, 
Jesus comes and he makes sure he lets them know what he's seeking as disciples. He's looking for followers who willingly surrender their lives to live for him, willing to learn from him, willing to obey him, and willing to stand up for him and make a difference in the world. So who is this disciple that Jesus is seeking? Before the followers of Christ were defined as Christians in the book of Acts, we're told that they were called people of the way. Really identifying himself with Jesus who declared of himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. But that term Christian carries this broad scope of interpretations in our world today. And today we would refer to a Christian perhaps in social ideals or morals, social classes, and activities that have absolutely nothing to do with either Jesus himself or following and obeying his teachings. But it is interesting when you see that term Christian, it literally means Christ wants. And it is used in the New Testament only three times in a much narrower context of the word. However, if you go through the Gospels and you go through Acts alone, that word disciple stands out there 264 times. The disciple. Dallas Willard said the New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for the disciples of Jesus Christ. If you think about Jesus and his final commission before he ascends up into heaven, he calls the disciples together and he gives them that great commission we know in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, come to them and he spoke to them and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The goal, he says, is making disciples. We're going for disciples, and I would define a disciple as a student and learner who follows after Christ and learns his teaching and seeks to apply his teaching through obedience and manner of life, becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ. The disciple becomes a fruit bearer, bearing the fruit of Christ, will also, according to their new nature, seek to become disciple makers. And so Jesus, with that, he says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. First thing I want you to see here is that a disciple possesses an undivided loyalty to Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus is not to be just an additive to your life, among all other relationships in your life, it means that he must hold that place of preeminence and honor above all other relationships. This is really a radical statement of comparison. When Jesus calls us, he says to hate your parents or children or brothers and sisters, we know from all the teachings of Jesus, he's not talking of a literal hatred or despising of your families, but rather making a statement of comparison meaning that Jesus himself must hold this place of preeminence and honor in your life with undivided loyalty to him above all other relationships in your life. It means that our relationship with Jesus must become number one priority in our life, possibly you know, using us, severing maybe even other earthly relationships, that our relationship with Christ comes first and foremost above every other relationship that Jesus will not accept being number five on a scale from one to 10 on your list of priorities. 
He's saying, this is going to be me. It's going to be a relationship with me which comes first before anything else in your life. And notice that Jesus also includes in that list even your own life. you got to hate your own life. That your loyalty to him would take precedence over the loyalties you have to even yourself. That being a disciple of Christ means that we're not willing for anything, for any relationship or object to come between us and Christ, even at the cost of losing those good things, perhaps even our families and even our own self-preservation. You wonder, well, man, how could that ever be possible? How in the world could we ever do this? This is the good news when you look at it. It can only be achieved through agape love, and that agape love only comes from the Spirit of God. See, once you factor the Holy Spirit into the equation, you realize that God gives you the power and the ability to actually follow through with this. In our flesh, we know we could never, ever do this. I think of all those many disciples in the early church who they paid a dear price because of their relationship with Christ and their loyalty to him. You know, many were excommunicated from their families. They were cast out of synagogues, all because of their relationship with Jesus. Many were cast out and separated from people they knew and they loved, their friends, the ones they they held so dear. But I want you to notice something very important here. Many who severed from their families and friends didn't do so because they rejected their family and unbelieving friends, but because their families and friends rejected them because of Jesus. You see, that's very important because the cults When you look at the cults, what they do is they demand their followers to sever all earthly relationships. There's a cult that is nearby that demands all their members cut themselves off from everyone who is not part of their particular cult. But Jesus never tells his disciples to cut off their families and their friends, but what he does understand is that their family and friends will cut them off because of him, and he prepares them for it. He says in John 15, 18, I love this, Jesus never puts it in fine print. He lets you know up front, this is gonna be a rough road. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the, world that I said, the word that I said to you, that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who has sent me. Here's the truth of the whole issue. You will never love your father or your mother, your wife or your husband, your brother or your sister or your children, and even yourself with a purer kind of love then when you first give your love to Jesus Christ as number one priority in your life. That's the truth. Christ's love compels us to love even our enemies with the purest kind of love. So if you have unbelievers in your family, you know the ache that you feel for them. Some of you this morning, you pray every day for those ones in your family who have perhaps cast you aside because of your faith but yet you ache for them, you love them, you seek them, you desire that they too would come to know Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A disciple must carry his own cross. 
Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What we find interesting is that Jesus references the cross long before he carries his own cross and dies on it. Long before Jesus goes before the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will, but your will be done, he has already yielded himself and fixed himself on the will of the Father, knowing that he will absolutely die upon a cross. And to those who would seek to follow after him, he says to them, well, if you wish to follow after me, you must deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your own cross daily and follow me wherever that would take you. For unless you do this, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Very specific. Now for the believers today, we know that the cross is typically an emblem of, of salvation. It's the glory of Christ. We have our, our cross over here. It's kind of a rugged one. I didn't want a gold one. I thought I want one that kind of looks like it would really be. But we know this, that at that time, that the cross was the method of public execution. It was a public humiliation, a slow, painful death. The cross was the equivalent of what we might call the day of the guillotine or the firing squad or the gas chamber or the electric chair. I mean, can you imagine wearing a little small gold electric chair around your neck and kind of, hey, look at my electric chair. This is really awesome. This is really cool. This is what Jesus said. This is the place of death. This is the place where you lay it all down. Now, Jesus didn't mean that every disciple can expect to die on the cross in the same way that he died, but he intends for them to follow in a yielded way, surrendered to his will in the same way that he was surrendered to the Father. And I love what, what A.W. Tozer writes in this, and this is really profound. He says, remembering my own deep imperfections, I would think and speak with charity of all who take upon them the worthy name by which we Christians are called. But if I see a right, a cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a bright, new bright ornament upon the bosom of a self-assured and carnal Christianity whose hands are indeed the hands of Abel, but whose voice is the voice of Cain. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroys confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought, brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. The flesh, smiling and confident, preaches and sings about the cross. Before that cross, it bows and bows, and toward that cross, it points with careful stage, histrionics. But upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of that cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. But here Jesus says it very clear. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow after him cannot be his disciple. And here's the truth, we all have our own cross to bear. I have my cross to bear, you have your cross to bear. There are some things in my relationship with Christ that cost me dearly, that are unique to me, and God knows exactly what those things are. But it means that I have to abdicate the throne of self and allow him to rule and reign over life, my life. It means that my plans are to become his plans for me. It means that my will is to be his will for me. It means that my purpose is to be his purpose for me. 
And then Jesus, in emphasizing the cost of all this, he adds to this, these two parables. First of the builder, he says, for which one of you, when he wants to build the tower, does not first sit down and, and, and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, but was not able to finish. And then Jesus gives the parable of the king going to battle. He says in verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while he is on the other side, still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. Now, in these two parables, Jesus illustrates the importance of counting the cost before you take on this mantle of being called a disciple of Jesus. He says, first of all, the builder, does not the wise builder first calculate to make sure he has enough to finish the project before he begins the project? Does he not first make sure he calculates that he has everything he needs, lest he just build a foundation with a, half that is, uh, with a house that is halfway built and look like a fool? Janet and I, many years ago, we lived in Sacramento, where we lived in this garage that was built by a couple who had built it while they were building their house. The house was never finished. The foundation of the house was outside. Some of the walls were halfway built, but somewhere along the line, the couple broke away in their marriage. They separated. They got divorced, leaving the house unfinished, nothing to show for it but the garage that was in half of a house. And the truth was this, you know, that they hadn't counted the cost of their marriage. And in their marriage, they haven't counted the cost of the house. And that halfway built house symbolized their broken marriage. No, the wise builder, he says, first examines. He calculates. He makes sure he has everything that he needs. He knows what he's doing before he takes that first shovel of dirt. The second illustration, of course, before a wise king sends a, his men out into the battlefield, does he not first calculate to see whether he has what it takes to win the battle? If all he has is 10,000 men, he knows, he knows he's going against 20,000 men, will he not do everything possible to first establish peace before going to battle and causing his men for slaughter. Of course he would. The wise king first calculates the cost. And he's saying to you, he says, I want you to count the cost if you really want to follow after me. And verse 33, he says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. He's touching on all the stuff, all the things. He looks out at this vast crowd of people that have surrounded him. He sees them before his eyes and he says, man, I'm so glad you're all here. I'm so glad you're all here. Here you are, look at you. You can follow after me and I'm gonna give you a life of ease and pleasure. You can come after me and I'm gonna give you a, a chance to party hearty and to fulfill all your wildest dreams. I'm here to fulfill every aspiration that you have for yourself. I'm here to make you happy and to make you rich and to make you become a better you. No, that's not what Jesus says. And the message he says here, I'm here to have you follow after me in the way that I live. And he's saying, I want you to give it all up to be my disciple. I want you to pick up and carry your own cross and follow after me. I want you to be willing to sacrifice your most precious relationships and all your most precious possessions and give me preeminence in your life. Jesus would say to them, so you want to be my disciple? 
You really want to follow after me? Count the cost. See here, Jesus is weeding them out. C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, in, in reference, he says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment and frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want only a prune to branch here and prune to branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself and in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Christ seeks all of us, not just a part of us. He seeks the heart of us. And so Jesus would say in verse 34, therefore salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The true disciple is the salt of the earth. A true disciple who lives and follows after Jesus becomes of great value to a lost world. Jesus once said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When you look at the, 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 the purposes for salt and its functions, you realize that it adds seasoning. It adds flavor to that which is bland, to that which is dull. Salt stimulates thirst. It serves as a preserving agent, a purifying agent, keeps things from spoiling and rotting. Salt stings an open wound, but it also saves someone from gangrene. You see what Jesus is saying, we're not called to be honey in the world, but to be salt in the earth. If we lose our saltiness, we lose our divine purpose. That our value of this lost world is good for nothing without disciples who are going to really follow after Jesus. That when we live in this world, we will be good for the world. We'll stimulate this world to thirst for that which they need. We'll serve as a preserving agent to keep the world from corruption and rot. You see, when a disciple loses that Christian character, he becomes good for nothing. And eventually they are walked on by others and they bring disgrace to Christ. And again, people, I want you to grab the scene here. This is so important. This is a multitude of people that are surrounding Jesus. And rather than getting giddy with himself because so many people have come to gather around him, Jesus begins to weed them out. He's actually weeding out the crowd. And he's letting them know up front, hey, listen, I'm not after just warm bodies here. No, I'm looking for disciples. I'm looking for people who would really follow after me. Would you really want to be my disciple, do you? Do you really want to? Would you really be willing to lose it all for my sake? Would you be willing to give me preeminence in your lives above every other relationship? Would you really be willing to lay down your plans for my plans? To lay down your will for my will? Would you really choose to, to carry your own cross in the way that I will carry mine? And that, I believe, is the call of Jesus. 
And I think that's still the call of Jesus amidst this backdrop of anemic Christianity we find so prevalent today. Will you follow me? Will you really be my disciple? We're told in John 6 that Jesus had a vast crowd of disciples with him and he began to explain to them about his death and the cost of what it would mean. It says there was milling there was, there was many of his disciples who withdrew from him and were not willing to walk with him anymore. And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said to them, you do not want to go also, do you? And it was Simon Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Indeed, Peter and the rest of the disciples shared in the sufferings of Christ. And they lived their lives completely devoted with the preeminence of Christ. And through many trials and tribulations, they ultimately surrendered everything to follow him. But they turned the world upside down. They were the salt of the earth. I think it was many years ago when I was confronted with my own choice of what I would do with Jesus. Would I really surrender all to follow him? I remember that day that I got on my knees and I said, Jesus, you can have everything. I don't want anything. You can have it all. You take it all, want it all. I, I said, Lord, you can do what you want to do in my life. You can peel away what you need to peel away, but I just surrender to you. And I have to tell you that over the years, that choice has revisited me over and over and over again. It still revisits me where the light lords would say to me, would you still be my disciple? Would you really still follow after me if it means losing the things that you have and your possessions and your relationships that you love? Would you still be willing to lose it all for my sake? And I have to tell you, over the years, there's been a lot of failures on my part. There were too many times that I was distracted and caught up with other things that took place over Christ. But he comes back to me again and again. He says, will you be mine? Will you really follow after me? And people say, well, what about your life? Would you say it's worth it? Oh, yeah. Has it always been easy? Oh, no. Has it always been the thing? I can tell you this. I've had so many joys in my life related to Jesus. I wouldn't exchange any of it. But there's been some hard things, some difficult things, but he's the only one I know who has the words of eternal life. And following Jesus is worth it all. I have no regrets. And the Lord would say to us here at in January 3rd of 2021, he would look to his people, would you still follow me? Would you still follow me? Would you still give it all up for me? Would you still surrender it all? Would you still yield your plans and your desires and even your families over to me? Would you still make me number one above all other things? And he leaves us with that choice, but you see, he's good in that he knows that unless we willingly, volitionally make that choice, we'll never understand the fullness of his love and grace. Because in exchange, he gives us himself. He gives us his love and his grace. And I love how Jesus ends this particular portion as he does in the book of Revelation. He says, he who has ears to hear, let 
him here. And I believe there's some folks here this morning, the Lord is saying, do you hear? Do you hear? Maybe your life has been so clouded with so many things and the Lord's bringing you back to a place saying, let's just settle this now. Let's go into this year, let's do it the right way. Give me the place that I so desire. For unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. This morning we're gonna end our time here on commun- in communion, first communion of the year. But I pray that as we do today, that it's not just a ritual for you. I pray that it's something personal with you, that you can say with Jesus, Jesus, I share with you, I still believe in everything that you've done for me. I still believe that my salvation is completely and wholly by what you have done for me, not what I do for you. But also, Lord, I yield myself to be yours and to serve you and to give you my all. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, your word is is powerful. It is convicting. It does, Lord, get to the crux of the whole matter. And this morning as a group of believers, Lord, I pray that we could come to you and tell you, Lord, that we indeed, Lord, desire to be disciples. That we would be learners and obedient and desire you above all other things in this world. And even now, God, as we would prepare our hearts to commune with you. Lord, in these moments, Lord, that you would speak to us and draw us near to you. May we hear your voice, Lord, just speaking words of love and grace, knowing that, Lord, you desire us, that you're not just looking for bodies, you're looking for disciples. Disciples.